Hi friends, I'm Tierney. I'm Katie. And I'm Shelby. And we're Dead Dead Drunk. So we have a whole new microphone set up this week. It took us a very long time to figure out. We were pretty much fuming. It's now like 9.30. What time do you think we started setting this up? Two. <laughs> you got here at like 2.30 and we like, oh God. It's been it, a really great Wednesday. It's been, But they got Chinese food. So that's lit. Yeah, that's, that's not true. at all disagreeing with me. And we got, <laughs> yeah, I feel great right now. Um, so we're still working on our audio quality. I know that our past podcast sounded a little bit echoey, so we're trying to work on that. Bear with us for a little bit because we're still figuring everything out. We're trying, okay. But I'm super excited to tell you about the case of the Porco murders today. Um, it's a local case to Albany, New York, which is where I grew up. And this happened when I think I was like 10. So it happened during my lifetime, dun, dun, dun. which I remember when it was happening, it was super crazy. Um, so our drink this week is a bacon Bloody Mary because we are playing off the whole pork-o name. So Katie, do you want to tell them how we made this bacon-infused Bloody Mary? Okay, so what you going to do? So you're going to get bacon vodka because what we did we couldn't find it so we actually infused it if you want to see how you made that if you can't get your hands on bacon vodka you can go on our instagram at dead drunk crime and check out how we made that but you're gonna grab some of that you're gonna add about like one or two ounces depending on how you're feeling see for me right now i'm a two ounce kind of girl because we again very complicated day we decided to get uh bloody mary mix from the store and it's really good because you can get like the bare minimum and then you could add spice to it. To add spice to it, you can add horseradish. You could add even crushed red peppers, anything like hot sauce, pepper, all that goodness. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. And then you mix that up and top that shit with anything you can imagine. And what did we top it with? Motherfucking cheeseburgers with bacon yeah yeah and like i guess some other veggies but like fuck that because we got cheeseburgers in a drink yeah i know you could put like celery but that's healthy why put a stock of celery when you could literally put a cheeseburger i don't know <laughs> you could dip the cheese no that's kind of gross but so we did a we did a pretty neat kind of simple cocktail dessert. yeah it's simple so. but it's also like super extra so yeah All right, so without further ado, it's time to jump in to our case. Pork it up. Let's pork this shit up. On the morning of November 15th, 2004, New York State Courts Officer Michael Hart was ordered to the home of Peter and Joan Porco. Peter, a state appellate division court clerk, no, I don't know what that is, but that's what it said, so that's what I'm going to say, had not reported to his Albany office for that morning. So they sent Officer Hart to go check on him. There was no way Officer Hart could have prepared himself for the scene he was about to walk into. So Hart approached the Porco home at 36 Broccoli Drive. 
and discovered that a key was still inside the lock. Convenient. Yeah. He knocked, but then when nobody answered, he proceeded to let himself in using the key. It was there at the front door that Officer Hart found Peter's lifeless, blood-soaked body lying at the base of the stairs. Oh my god. He was very obviously deceased, although his eyes were still open. Okay, yeah. You know how I talked about the throwing up? That's, that's about to start. It was also apparent that he had suffered massive blunt force trauma to the head. Immediately, Officer Hart called it into the station, and Detective Chris Bowdish quickly arrived. Bowdish had actually known Peter Porco from working in the Albany area for so long, and he could not believe his eyes when he arrived on the scene. That must have been so hard. They were friends. I couldn't imagine that. Yeah, they had, I don't know how close they were, but they had worked in the same area for so long that they, like, they knew each other. Yeah, obviously. You know? Oh, my God. Bowdish then walked past Peter's body and up the stairs to search the rest of the house. What he found in the couple's bedroom was even more chilling. Joan Porco, Peter's wife, was found in bed with similar injuries to Peter. She had also suffered severe blunt force trauma to her face and head. Oh, gosh. A fireman's axe was laying next to her on the bed. Detectives were able to tell right away that this was the weapon that had been used in the attack. And upon further investigation, it was determined to be an axe that belonged to the Porco family as it was missing from their garage. Wow. Wow. That's so spooky at being your own, like, oh gosh. Yeah, your own weapon that ends up killing you. Yeah. So they're in the bedroom, and to everyone's surprise, they find out that Joan somehow still has a pulse. Oh my gosh, after, oh God. Yeah. She was still alive. She was barely conscious, but she was still alive. Joan's injuries were more extensive than Peter's. But it was later determined that because she stayed in the bed, her blood had coagulated and she was able to survive. Wait, so the husband got out of the bed at some point? Or, like, was he fighting? Like, I don't... Well, the reason detectives say that Peter was found at the bottom of the stairs and not in the bedroom next to Joan was that he had somehow regained consciousness after the attack. He got up and he attempted to go about his morning as normal. Oh my god. So he went to the bathroom and brushed his teeth. He went downstairs to make coffee. He unloaded the dishwasher and he did other mundane household tasks that he presumably did every morning. And the reason that they know that he did all these things is because blood was found inside the dishwasher in the bathroom sink all over the house. Holy shit. So he didn't even know that this happened to him? No. So he was just like blocking it out or something? Like that's so insane. I guess we really don't know, but pretty incredible. What the human brain can suffer and still get through. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But medical professionals later stated that if Peter had stayed in the bed with Joan, he probably would have survived because his injuries were so much less gruesome than hers. Oh, my God. Wow. So Bowdish immediately suspected that the attacker was somebody close to the family. Besides the fact that the key was left in the front door, signaling Mm -hmm. that there was no forced entry. Facial attacks are usually deemed very personal because the trauma the victims had received was to their face. Police suspected that it was definitely someone the family knew that had done this to them. 
It was also noted that the family dog did not alert Peter and Joan Porco to an intruder, which to me tells us that the person who entered the home on that night was somebody that the dog trusted and knew too. Oh, wow. So they, they didn't w- hurt the dog. Yeah, the right? dog's okay. They did not hurt the dog. The dog was unharmed. Okay. Well, that's, that's really important news. Yes. Really good. Which also could mean that it was somebody that knew the family because they wouldn't want to hurt the animal. Ooh, if it was some random yeah, person, yeah. they wouldn't care as much, right? If they're just out to murder. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I also think that if it were me, it would be so much harder to kill a dog than a human. Mm-hmm. Dogs are just too perfect to they the are. world. Yeah. Okay. So while waiting for the paramedics to arrive, and Bowdish realized that Joan was semi-conscious, he decided to ask her a few questions while they were waiting there, which was the best call. So did he do that to keep her conscious and awake? Or was it like a mixture of that and just trying to get some answers before she either could have passed away or maybe I just think it like was probably a, a combination of both. Yeah. The vibe that I got from it was that he knew that she was conscious and she was the eyewitness. And if she was going to pass away, they wanted to get a statement from her before that happened. Yeah. So... Bowdish asked her three questions. First, he said, did a family member do this? And Joan clearly shook her head yes. Oh, my God. Then he asked, did Jonathan do this to you? Jonathan was their older son, and at the time he was supposed to be away on active duty. And to this question, Joan shook her head no. Okay, good. And then the last question he asked was, did Christopher do this? And she shook her head yes. It was this conversation that allowed police to quickly focus the investigation on Peter and Joan's 21-year-old son, Christopher Porco. Chris was the younger of two sons and was attending school at the University of Rochester, which was about three hours away from the family home, which was like 230 miles, give or take. So Chris was actually accidentally notified of his parents' death by a reporter for the Times Union, The Times Union is the local newspaper in Albany. And the reporter called and asked Chris for a statement about the death of his parents, to which he seemed completely shocked by, which, I mean, I understand that. Oh my God, just imagine getting that phone call. Upon hearing the news, Christopher immediately called 911 to ask for more information. And I actually have a small snippet of the 911 call that he made. So I want you to listen and tell me, or think to yourself at home, what you think of just how he sounds on this call. I'm going to play it now. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Borgo. I was just called by the Times Union saying that my parents were found dead this afternoon. Um, I was wondering if you had any information on me. I'm at school in Rochester, New York. Okay, and are you in a dorm there? Yes, I am. Okay. Do you have a dorm name or...? Um, it's called Monroe. Okay. And you're hearing from the Times Union? Yeah, they called me and said my, my parents were found, um, I guess. I don't know, they didn't say how or anything. Wait. So he was just like, hey, it's me, Chris. I'm just wondering, like... What about my parents? If that were me, I would have started, like, projectile vomiting. Like, the police would have had to come to me because I would have been freaking out. Like, yeah. he's just like, 
hey, what's good with this? Yeah, that Which, like, call, I kind of almost understand. He sounds like he's calling Just, like, Amazon customer service to report that a piece didn't come that he ordered yeah. or yeah. whatever. Saying, hey, um, Taco Bell, are you guys open till 1 a.m. or later? Mm-hmm. Like, definitely not the voice of somebody who just lost he thinks both of his parents are dead i don't want to judge him too much for this because you never know how you're going to react when it happens to oh you. yeah definitely we say now that we would be hysterically crying but you just never know how you're going to react in oh i throw up in any stressful situation <laughs> like i'm not kidding yeah. so you're gonna react just like a cat but yeah i'm like <laughs> i threw up a hairball and you're just like what yeah, that call just did not sit yeah, right with me at no. all. Yeah, I agree completely. So police in Albany contacted the Rochester Police Department, and they went and found him in his dorm room. He then went back to Albany and went to the hospital to see his mother. Reporters for the Times Union were told that they were not allowed to enter Albany Medical Center where Joan was being treated because they didn't want press in the hospital during her recovery. Brendan Lyons, however, had a way around that rule. Brennan Lyons was a senior reporter for the Times Union, and his wife had just given birth to their child, so he was already inside the hospital. Oh, wow. Yeah. How, so, like, almost lucky, but kind of really fucked up at the same exact time. Yeah. Getting, that's dope. He's like, all right, that's hold dope. the baby, honey. I need to go do something. So he snuck into the ICU to observe Chris Porco and his demeanor while he was with his mother and his family members that came to the hospital. Lyons said that Chris did not seem the least bit upset. He also said that it was very obvious that his family was suspicious of Chris. They would slip down the hallway and whisper about him because they knew he was the main suspect in the crime. Lyons also said that there was a police officer that would not leave the room because they were afraid that if he was the person who attacked his parents, he would try to finish the job. Naturally. Yeah, that's pretty smart of them, honestly. The police in this case, did a really, really awesome job. Yeah, in a lot of cases, I know that, like, they don't take these matters seriously, and they're yeah. just like, you'll be fine, and then they're just, like, extra dead, you know? Especially <laughs> Bowdish. Oh, yeah. What a genius he was yeah, for asking her ask, those questions. Yeah. Oh, 100%. So the police just did a phenomenal job, which I know in our last podcast we talked about the police. Maybe could have done a better job. This time they were just, they were great. Okay, so Joan ultimately did survive, but she did have brain damage and a facial disfigurement. She ended up losing part of her jaw and her eyeball, and then she was left almost completely blind in her other eye as well. Aww. But she is alive. While Joan was in surgery, police took Chris to the station to be questioned. This questioning lasted six hours. Before the interview began, Chris was read his rights and given the opportunity to have a lawyer present. He declined, saying he was comfortable speaking to them without one. Never do that. Never Never do that. (laughs) It's like the dumbest thing you could do. Bowdish described Chris as not being upset at all during this interview, which sounds familiar to what Brendan Lyons said. He never made eye contact and constantly looked towards the floor. This stood out to detectives as a sign that he was not being truthful with them. Oh, it's a telltale sign that you're lying. It's the very most basic signs that you're lying. Yeah. yeah. So during the interview, Chris claimed that the last time he was at the house was the Saturday before the... The attack itself happened on a Sunday night slash Monday morning-ish. He said that he was in the area because he was visiting his then-girlfriend, Sarah Fisher, who attended Fairfield University, 
but she was home in the Albany area for the weekend where she was from also. He could not give detectives an address of where Sarah lived, and he simply said that he knew the house when he saw it, but he didn't know the street or the house number. Which, okay, whatever. (laughs) How do you not know the street your girlfriend lives on? Yeah, um... He said he had spent the night at Sarah's on Friday night, and then he had stopped home to see his parents early on Saturday afternoon. When he entered the home, neither of his parents were there. He then remembered that his mom was away at a conference that weekend and figured that his dad must have gone out on an errand or something. So he said he fed the family dog, and then he got on the road back to Rochester. When he got back to school, he claims he went to the lounge in his dorm building and fell asleep on the couch there while he was watching a movie. It should be noted that this alibi cannot be confirmed and does contradict what he originally said to detectives about being brought in. Originally, Chris had said he had not been home in weeks, but later he clarified saying that he thought they meant when the last time he saw his parents was, not the last time he was home. And since his parents weren't home when he came in, then he got confused, but he hadn't seen his parents in you know, that makes sense when he explains it, but still a little weird. that he No, yeah, that's different. how I would have, like, taken it if I was mixing things up and confusing what the police were saying. I would have probably said yeah. something similar. So when police spoke to Chris's friends about his whereabouts, as I said, nobody could confirm that he was actually in the lounge that night at all. Throughout his initial interview, a few other important things did come up. Chris said that the last time he had contact with his parents was through email, which we will later learn is how they normally communicated. And according to Chris, they had been discussing financial aid the last time they spoke. Mm. Chris also claimed that his aunt and uncle had been in town the Tuesday before. His uncle was a fireman. And it was interesting that he brought up his uncle considering that the murder weapon was a fireman's axe. It's kind of, you know, that he offered that up. I don't know. No, that is strange. Chris also stated that it couldn't have been his brother Jonathan because he was away on active duty in the Navy, which we know. When he was asked about a safe in the basement, Chris said it belonged to him and he normally left a key in it because there was nothing of value inside. So this was interesting to police for a couple of reasons. One, because the door to the house was also left with a key inside. So if this was something that Chris normally did, that Mm -hmm. would... Yeah. It was also interesting because there was something of value inside the safe. I read in a couple places that the cell phone of one of his coworkers was inside of the safe. Um, and it had gone missing sometime before the attack. So Chris's vehicle was also brought up during the interview. Chris drove an extremely conspicuous vehicle that will later become kind of important in this case um he drove a banana yellow jeep oh wow so he like if he got into any trouble there would be like who is that and he'd be like oh that dang chris porco and that banana jeep (laughs) it was definitely a car that people remembered oh so he's that guy he is that guy yeah never trust a guy who drives a banana yellow jeep okay so according to chris he took his car up the thruway and was back to Rochester around 3.30 p.m. on Saturday afternoon. He said that he has an easy pass and he claims he never uses a different route to go to and from school. So what's an easy pass for the viewers outside of New York State? Because I believe it's called something different in other states and countries. Yeah. 
An easy pass is just kind of like a thing that goes on your car and it calculates the tolls so you don't have to stop and pay at toll booths. Oh, convenient. Yeah. So you can just kind of drive through and it goes onto your account. But it does keep a record. Right. So Chris is then asked about the home security system and whether or not there's a panic button that his parents would have had access to. I know my parents have um, a security device at their house and there's a remote that they can keep in their bedroom so they could press a panic button or they could turn it on or off if they're upstairs and they're like, oh, did we set the alarm? They could press it. Oh, that's really great. Yeah. I've always wondered how these work if you (laughs) are up in your bedroom and somebody's already inside the house murdering you, you know? Oh, gosh. So Chris says that there was one that could be used, and I quote, if someone's putting a gun to your head or something. What? That's the whole purpose of this thing. Yeah, what? He said. That's really strange. That's a strange way to say it, mm-hmm. though. Yeah. Huh. He then offered that the alarm might not have been set because sometimes his parents will take out the dog and forget to turn it back on, so the alarm might not have even been on. Mm. Then he offered the idea that many of his friends know the garage code and where the spare keys were found. Huh. So, so far, he's tried to throw blame Towards his uncle, right? Mm -hmm. And now towards every single one of his friends? Yeah. He also stated that his dad, who was working at the court, may have enemies. He said that he had gotten death threats before because of his line of work. So there might be people that are out to get him because they were in court with him. Valid, but terrifying. So at this point, it's unclear to me... In my research, if detectives had told Chris that anyone had entered the garage at all for the axe or if the spare key was used to unlock the door. But if it had not been mentioned before, I feel like this is extremely incriminating for Chris that he offered up that his friends knew the garage code and where the spare key was found because it was the spare key that was found in the door. Oh, yeah. yeah, Wow. So I just got full body chills. (laughs) So if he if police hadn't said this to him yet. How does he know that it was that? Why is he offering up the spare key? So he didn't even know that it was like easy access to go inside. Like there was no sign to force entry. He just knew it. I don't see. It's unclear if the police had said this to him outside of the interview. But in the interview I read, they hadn't mentioned it to him. That's spooky. Although he was contacted by a reporter. So he may know more than he was supposed to know. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what he knows. I'm just saying if he didn't know that stuff. Kind of weird that he offered yeah, it up. either way, it's spook. Right. So at this point, I'm assuming the detectives also got a weird vibe from that, and they asked Chris a second time if he wanted a lawyer, and he said no. Huh. Yeah. Girl. So they, throughout this interview, many times, like, are you sure you don't want a lawyer? And he's like, nope, I'm good. So he knew this whole time that he was their number one suspect. I don't know if he knew that or if they're was- They're telling him to get a lawyer, basically. Yeah. He's, like, saying something that's, like, real spooky and kind of fucked up, kind of incriminating, and they're just like, so, like, you're sure you're good. And he's just like, yeah, I'm good, but also, I have some motives. Like, no. (laughs) Detectives then asked about Chris's relationship with his parents, and Chris does admit to having financial problems and arguments about money with them. According to him, though, it was nothing serious. Chris also asked a couple things during this interview that were a little strange. He asked detectives if he thought his mom was going to survive, 
Which I don't know how they would know that. No, yeah. And then he also asked who was the person that found his dad's body. That's a weird question. I don't know. I feel maybe I would want. I, I don't know. I can't but tell what I would want to interview. You, yeah. Like, who walked in and found him. Yeah, that's creepy. The first well, one. If uh, you say anything like that, <laughs> it's creepy. The first question. I, mean, I want to have Cheerios for breakfast. I get that. See, but <laughs> the, first, <laughs> the first question I kind of get, like, uh, is my mom going to survive? I would be asking everyone, hands up and hands down. But, like, I could see he's being, like, I don't know, like, interviewed because he might be a suspect. And I don't know. That's just weird for me. But I halfway understand. Yeah. I don't know. It's just the, the who found his dad was very... Mm-hmm. They're both strange questions to ask after six hours of you being interrogated as the main suspect yeah. in your parents' yeah. So while this questioning was going on, police were also questioning many of Chris's friends in Rochester and his girlfriend, Sarah Fisher. Chris's friends say he lied about a lot of things, huh. mostly if they were things concerning money. His girlfriend, Sarah, claimed that there was a time when they were passing a very big and beautiful house in the area and Chris claimed he'd lived there as a child. Sarah thought this was odd because she knew the people who lived in the house, but thought nothing of it at the time. Really? Yeah. So she knew he was lying, but kind of was like, oh, Chris. Well, just call him out. So was he manipulative towards her or, like, towards everyone? Because, like, his friends said that he lied often. That's yeah. kind of wild. Like, I would never consider one of my friends to be known as that. You get me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. He also apparently would lie about having a trust fund and a house in North Carolina, neither of which actually ever existed. Huh. I so, don't know to the extent that his friends knew this was a lie, though, at the time. I think okay. they found out during the trial that some of these things were not true. Friends say Chris also would go out of the way to make his friends aware that he had money he would talk about renting them an entire cabin on a plane, saying he does it all the time, as well as pick up expensive tabs of alcohol for them. One friend claimed they spent $300 on alcohol one night, and Chris paid for all of it. What? And they were all like, you really don't have to do that. He's like, no, no, I have so much money. It's fine. Where is he getting this money? Well, <laughs> So then police get a very important tip. One of the Porco's neighbors reports seeing Chris's car in the driveway around 4 a.m. on the morning of the attack while they were on their way to work. Wait, what? If you remember, Chris drove a bright yellow Jeep and it was easy to spot. And he also said that he was in Rochester at this time asleep on the couch. Oh, wow. Okay, that's real sketch. That's one lie. That's super so spook. when they get this tip, detectives impounded Chris's Jeep. And you know what they found? Nothing. There was not a single trace of blood in or on the car, nor on any of his belongings. So detectives experience another setback when they lose their only eyewitness. Upon waking after surgery, Joan remembers absolutely nothing of the attack. Wait, what? So, yeah, when she learned that Chris was their number one suspect, she was extremely surprised. She could not fathom that her son would do anything like that. And she's not the only one who can't believe it either. Chris's boss at the local vet clinic could not imagine Chris doing anything like this. Wait, so he worked at a vet? What did he do there? 
Well, from what I could find, he worked in the operating room. I think he was kind of like an assistant and would help set things up or clean up after surgeries. Wait, so, okay. So, pause times like three, wait times five. So, he knew how to clean up after blood splatter and whatever else after surgeries? Yeah. Or at least keep it off your clothing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I didn't think about that before, but that's an extremely good point. Because that could maybe explain why his blood and his blood, why his car and his stuff didn't have blood on it. And it was so like sterile if that's what he did for work. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Wow, I'm unsettled. I'm real spooked. (laughs) So at this time, police received some very important evidence from Chris's school. The University of Rochester had just put in new cameras all around their campus And the footage these cameras picked up allowed for police to piece together a timeline for how Chris would have committed this murder. Wait, oh my gosh. So this is the timeline that the police put together. On November 14th at 10.30 p.m., the university footage shows Chris's Jeep leaving campus and traveling towards the New York State Thruway. At approximately 10.45, the toll collector at exit 46 remembers seeing Chris pass through. Remember, he had that big yellow Jeep. Oh, my gosh. Chris then drove down the thruway to exit 24 at Albany, and the toll collector there also remembers Chris getting off the exit at 1.51 a.m. This Jeep is so memorable to toll booth, toll booth workers that only see cars all day remember this car. Right. And especially if he's using his easy pass, they didn't, he didn't even stop and say hello to them. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So, at 2.14 a.m., the security alarm at the Porco house is disarmed. At this point, police speculate that Chris went to the garage, got the axe, and went straight up to the master bedroom. He crept over to Joan's side of the bed, standing over her body, as he reached across her to attack his father. Oh my god. Once he was done with him, he redirected his attack to Joan. When he believed them both to be dead, Chris went back downstairs and presumably set up the crime scene to look like a burglary. He smashed the security alarm and cut the phone wires. Oh, I hate that. I hate cutting phone wires. I know that we're in 2019, but I'm still spooked by it. Like, just cut my charger cable and I'll cry Mm -hmm. for three years. (laughs) At around 4 a.m., the neighbor drives by and sees the Jeep. Then at 8.30 a.m., the cameras at the University of Rochester pick up footage of Chris driving back onto campus. So when would he have left then to get back to Rochester? Um, About three hours before. So So like a little after the... A little bit after the neighbor saw the car. So I just want to go back for a minute and mention that Chris had previously stolen two laptops from the home and sold them on eBay. He was known for stealing things to make money off them, including items from his workplace, which would explain why a co-worker's cell phone was found in the safe. Police do think, however, that taking these laptops may have been part of his plan to make it look like a robbery. We know that he did sell them for money, and that was how he was affording to do all of the things we talked about before. 
but it could have also set up the idea that there was stuff taken from the house. Mm. And if this is true, it would mean that the attack was definitely premeditated and not random or out of sudden rage or anything Mm. like that. That's so much worse. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Ow. So when looking further into Chris's life, he becomes an even better suspect to police. Chris was extremely jealous of his older brother, Jonathan, basically because he did everything better than him. Chris was living in his brother's shadow for most of his life. Uh, He joined the ROTC to follow in the footsteps of Jonathan and had plans to join the Navy too. However, his grades were not good enough and he was dropped from the program. Chris was then suspended from the University of Rochester during his first semester of his sophomore year. He had earned three D's and an E. Wait, how do you even get an E? I don't know. I've never heard of that before. He claimed the reason for his suspension was because a professor lost his final exam. However, this was just another one of his lies. He was then forced to start taking classes at a local community college called Hudson Valley Community College, APCC. I took drivers out there. It was super fun. (laughs) Um, And he had his parents believing that he was doing really well there too. However, he continued to fail classes there as well. He then decided, instead of to work hard and studying good grades, that he could just forge a transcript from HVCC and they would just let him back into Rochester. And he was right because they bought it. Don't you think he's just doing the same amount of work but putting it into his lying? Yeah. So upon letting him back in, Chris lied again to his parents and told them that Rochester would be waiving his tuition to apologize for suspending him. Oh, makes sense. Yeah. So then you might be wondering how did he pay for school if he told his parents that it was being paid for and it wasn't. Chris then forged his father's name on a loan for $31,000. What the fuck? Mm -hmm. Because he's a great son. Oh, yeah. He's amazing. Honestly, I fucking hate him. I'm sorry. (laughs) So, because Chris liked to communicate with his parents through email, there was a paper trail for every one of their conversations leading up to the day of the murder. Peter had sent Chris an email about a late car notice, and Chris lied to him yet again, saying that he was waiting for a new credit card in the mail, and he had it all set up with automatic deduction, and the payment would go through. It was just taking a little longer, and not to worry about it. See, how is this any easier than just actually doing that? Yeah, I don't know. He lied to them about this kind of stuff all the time, and they gave him the benefit of the doubt, especially his mother, Joan. No. But Peter constantly was trying to clean up messes for Chris, too. When Peter realized that his credit was bad, he found out about the loan and emailed Chris to confront him about it. In his email, Peter said, Time to stop the bullshit. Call me at the office. More emails came in from Peter and Joan, but Chris did not reply to them. His mother's emails always sounded so pleading. One reading, what are you hiding? We can take the truth. Dishonesty is crumbling our relationship with you. No. So in the last email that police have record of, Joan further pleads for Chris to call home. And it reads, don't make me throw up right now. Chris, dad and I are very upset with you not communicating with us. We don't know if you are well or mentally stable. Dad is about to have a nervous breakdown. For God's sakes, call mom. Oh my God, that sounded so desperate. Yeah. And Chris never called. Don't be like Chris. No. Call your parents. And that's without anyone, man. Mm -hmm. You never know when it's going to be the last. So because he did not hear from his son, Peter canceled the loan, which if I were Peter, I would have canceled it. 
a while ago. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I would throw him on the street and be like, mm, I mean, you're good at lying, so figure it out, friend. And then walk away. But he loved him so much, and he kept giving him all these chances. Like, he really wanted to help him. Which makes Fuck, him he's sad. such a good dad. Yeah, even more sad. Um... So when Chris realized that the loan had been canceled, he also realized that he was going to lose the life that he had. And police say this is a motive for what was to come. So remember how I said when Peter was bleeding out around the house, he was doing all those tasks? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, there's something that I didn't tell you. Oh, God. One of the tasks that Peter was doing. Oh, God. Was paying Chris's overdue car payment that we had talked about before. Uh, Wait, no. So he was just being an even greater father than I just even thought? Yeah. So even though all this was going on with the loan, he still wanted to help his son. He knew that he was struggling and he needed help. Which is just so heartbreaking to me. Okay, I might actually throw up now. So... Chris was arrested for the murder of his father and attempted murder of his mother. While they were awaiting trial, his bail was posted at $250,000. And can you take a guess at who might have paid it for him? No. If you say his mother, I'm going to punch a wall. Call me Kyle. I won't say it. (laughs) But she was not the only one that paid for him to get out. His employer at the vet and his mother both helped pay. Okay, that's so. They, the two of them could not believe that he was capable of hurting anyone, so they paid for him to get out, and he waited trial as a free man. Oh, gross. That's pretty gross. Yeah. So that brings us to the trial. Because of their ties to Albany, the trial was moved downstate to Goshen, New York. Which is about to be even greater because Legoland. I'm just kidding. Don't go to Legoland. The oh citizens you can of Goshen, go. New York, don't want you to go. It's probably true. There's no hotels in the area to accommodate all the people that are going to go to Legoland. Can I go to Legoland? Yeah. You just have to drive right back here because there's not enough rooms over there. That's fair. It's pretty close. Mom, if you're listening, do you mind? I want to go to Legoland. Mom, <laughs> please take me to Legoland. <laughs> I'm good. I have Legos at home. All right. So Chris's defense attorney was Terrence Kinlan, and the lead prosecutor on the case was Mike McDermott. Throughout the trial, Joan stayed by Chris's side, and she even testified on his behalf, sharing stories about Chris that were heartwarming and full of love. And I remember reading that she would also tell stories that like made some of the jury members and the judges like laugh. Like they were like cute stories about his childhood. Oh. Um, She described him as growing up in a loving household and therefore said he was not capable of doing any of this. Do you think maybe she said that as a way to rationalize his behavior and not put it on herself as like being a bad mother? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, As a teacher, I've met parents who just don't accept if their child maybe has a learning disability or is not following directions um, because they think their child's perfect because it's their child. And it definitely impacts them, I think, throughout their life, too. Because if you grow up with your parents coddling you and telling you that you're perfect and you can't do any wrong, when you become an adult and realize that they were lying to you and you can do wrong and the whole world doesn't treat you like that, then there are issues. And I feel like maybe this is partially what happened to Chris. Yeah. 
I mean, I get both sides because, like, at one standpoint, if you had a daughter or son or whatever and they do something bad, you want to be like, all right, listen, that's okay, but just don't do it, this and that, but I'm still going to support you till the fucking end, right? But that's different than yeah. denying that it's mm-hmm. going on. This is Fair. saying that there right, is yeah, no yeah. wrong. You did no wrong. You are yeah. perfect. Just a blatant lie. Like when my parents told me that I was allergic to beer. <laughs> I'm actually allergic to beer, fun fact. Right, but I'm not. There are many pictures of Joan throughout this time um, hugging her son and mocking oh, no. in the court with her son no. and laughing with her son. Don't kind do of it, as don't. if this whole thing had never even happened. And she even wrote pages and pages and pages of letters to the prosecutors begging them to go, quote, find the real guy. To this day, she still believes that her son is innocent. That's really sad. So she doesn't even remember or even know that she shook her head yes or anything like that. No, she doesn't remember. So, to make it even more sad, Chris's brother Jonathan comes and testifies against him in court. Against? Yes, against. Huh. He seems to be the only person in Chris's life that thought that he was capable of this. He said that his relationship with Chris was always strained and that they were not close. And he also mentioned that both of the boys knew that if something were to happen to their parents, they would get the life insurance money. Oh, that makes a little bit of sense. That makes me sick. Yeah. Um, also, Jonathan, throughout his entire testimony, would not look at Chris. He just couldn't look at him oh. after what he did. I don't blame him. What is presumed. Mm. Yes. <laughs> so... Back to Sarah Fisher, Chris's girlfriend at the time of the murder. She, for a while, was on his side saying he was just a magnetic person, a smooth talker, and he was just like a great boyfriend to her. And she said that after the trial and all everything that went on, she could see all of his lies now. Wait, so isn't that almost the exact words that people describe Ted Bundy as being smooth talker and just magnetic and that's how he got his victims not saying that he is ted bundy but like bruh yeah it's just spooky it's spooky that it could literally be anybody it could be somebody's boyfriend or son or anyone could do something like this. you never really know a person right anyone could be capable even if you say oh they could have never done this like the person i know even people that knew kendall francois were like oh the kendall i know couldn't have done that yeah you don't know kendall you don't you don't know anybody yeah. So the jury only took six hours to make their decision in this case, which is an extremely short amount of time, especially in a case like this where there's only circumstantial evidence and there's no physical evidence tying him to the crime at all. And it was so short that Joan was not even in the building to hear the sentence. She had gone back to the hotel to take a nap, thinking that there would be more time, and there just wasn't. Oh, wow. So, Chris was found guilty on all counts. The jurors said the timeline was too perfect. He had no solid alibi and no remorse for what he did. Chris was sentenced to 50 years to life in prison, and his appeal was rejected. He maintains his innocence to this day, and his mother still believes him. Wow. That's so sad. Mm -hmm. So, I will leave you with this. You know, in high school yearbooks, when parents can send in messages for their kids and they'll put, like, a baby picture in? Yeah. Yeah. So, this is the one that appeared in Chris's high school yearbook from his parents. It said, Christopher, you possess a zest for life. 
Must you always use your gifts with love, purpose, justice, and peace? Love, Mom, Dad, and Jonathan. Wow. Yeah. Guys, we did it. Yay. We did Chris Porco, and I hope that it all recorded on our new stuff, because if not, I'm going to scream. Either way, I am, like, pretty just, like, so put off on everything, because yeah. that case was just so hard. I know. It was... Super upsetting spaghetti. I'm hyped for this new setup, though. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, like, let's talk about postcards, well yeah. Once we kind of get the hang of it. Yeah. So thanks for bearing with us. Yeah. And, like, if you made it till this end, thanks, Mom, because yeah. that's great. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. This was definitely a rough one. So do we have a little caboose for the end of our episode? Sure. Who are your guys' celebrity crushes? You can have one or however many you want. So I'd like to talk about a famous... Uh, Man, it's a smooth man. If you say Ted Bundy or Chris, absolutely Ford, not. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about a good man that'll never hurt you ever, and that man is Milagro oh. Silver <laughs> Tequila. But I Jesus, too. I really thought I you wouldn't say Jesus. I wouldn't say that he is like my man crush, but like I love him. But like I also love tequila. So like tequila, Milagro, please sponsor us because oh my God, Silver. Okay. Ooh. So that is that is my celebrity cut crush okay um, thanks mine is ben platt 100 percent. very different he is just he's so talented if you don't know who he is he was evan and dear evan hansen on broadway he was in book of mormon he was in pitch perfect he was benji i didn't really like that movie but i love him he is just just he's so cute and he's got such a good voice just, i had a few but Danny DeVito. Honestly, he's up there. He's, I don't blame you. Stop. I, he's I a good him. looking man. And he's funny. He has I, every characteristic that I love. I love your work. <laughs> I was going to say, Danny <laughs> DeVito, I love your work. I do, though. I really, <laughs> really love all your work. I, I think mine is the only one that's even a little bit attractive. So No, that's fine, because I was I really like- going to say Rob McElhenney, who's also on It's Always Sunny. He's the creator of It's Always Sunny. Mm-hmm. And he was average. Then he was super fat. Then he was average again. And now... Look him up. Look up a picture of him right now from the latest season of It's Always Sunny. He's hunky. Nice. Don't oh look up gosh. the latest picture of me because I am chunky. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's just about all we have for you today. I hope that you could hear this super well. I'm still nervous about it, but it's fine. Um, yep. Follow us on all the social medias yeah. and email us your celebrity crushes. At- right. So you can email us at deaddrunkpod at gmail.com and then on everything else we're at deaddrunkcrime right so send us your celebrity crushes or feedback um, don't tell me your celebrity crushes of, of any kind I don't want to hear that yeah. totally don't be one of those Yeah, and if you're listening on Apple we would really really appreciate a 5 star review <laughs> alright bye mom bye, Jenny bye. DeVito I love your work